and we're going to look at verses 31 to 34. And Tan, if you could just move on to the first two verses, please, for us. first verse here. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Even Christians will say this. I don't need to hear doctrine. Just give me something that will help me. Give me something that will solve my problems. Even Christians at times will come out with a statement that sounds wonderful. I don't believe in doctrine. I believe in Jesus. Except it's a false dichotomy that they set up. Because our problems get resolved when we come to know Jesus, and we come to know Jesus when we hear about him, and we need to know him better. And what Paul is doing here is he's not giving a theology class, but he's taking the teaching about God, and he's driving it home with logic and with reason into the hearts and minds of the Roman Christians, and the Holy Spirit does the same with us. Some of you may say, my problems are too great. They are too complicated. Others may go the other direction. You may say, actually, my problems are so tiny, I'm sure God won't be bothered. And still others perhaps are in a situation where they may say, my sin is too deep. It's just, it's too deep. It's too far gone. I watched um, an amazing video that's been produced by a group of women who work in Dundee with um, what are called in our culture now sex workers, but prostitutes. And in this case, women in Dundee who are slaves. That's what they are. This is in our city. This is today. This is what's going on. And I found it, just a 15-minute video, I found it incredibly moving. Not least the absolute hopelessness in the women's faces. And I wanted to go out and find them. Maybe I will. And it's difficult to do, isn't it, you know, without coming across in the wrong way. But I wanted to go out and find them and say, actually, there is a solution. And the solution is found in this, in the gospel. But we're going to look at uh, this doctrine. And what Paul says is, what can we say in response to this? What to these things? Now, these things in this letter go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 where Paul starts explaining what the good news is and what the gospel is. And in the rest of the chapters up until this point, he's done precisely that. In fact, for me, this is the absolute um, crescendo of, of where he's at later on. He's going to look at one or two, two difficulties with what he's been saying, and he's also going to offer some uh, practical applications. But this is the very, very heart. Romans 8 is the very, very heart, and, and this especially it's building up to this crescendo, which is what some people have called the victory song from verse 31 to 39. That these things he's just affirmed uh, in verses 29 and 30. He said that you know, God foreknows us, God predestined us, God calls us, God justifies us, God glorifies us. And he then says, what, what are we going to say? How will we respond? And he responds in a, 
He suggests in a strange kind of way, he asks five different questions. Now, this morning, we're going to deal with four of them, and hopefully next Sunday, we'll deal with the, the last one. So the first question is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, notice straight away, the question is not who's against you. You, you can ask that question. Who's against you? In fact, let's do that. You know the old song, count your blessings? All right, count your enemies. Who's against you? What's against you right now? Sometimes you feel like the kid's song, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, thinks I'll go eat worms. Um, if you don't know that song, don't worry. It goes on and gets even grosser, big ones, juicy ones. You know. But no, nobody loves me, everybody hates me. Sometimes we do feel like that. Maybe situation at work is incredibly difficult. Maybe the situation at home is incredibly difficult. Maybe we look in terms of our whole culture and we see in a context of a culture which is increasingly anti-Christian, never mind apathetic, we see enemies everywhere. Maybe we're conscious of spiritual warfare. Maybe we're conscious of difficulties within the church. Maybe perhaps most of all we're conscious of the sin within us, the the fact that we want to do good, but the evil that we do not want to do, that we keep on doing. Who's going to deliver us from this body of death? There are many, many things that are against us. And I don't want anyone here to have the false understanding that the Christian life is just one of perfect bliss and everything being sorted out. It's not. In fact, the Christian life is really, really hard in lots of ways. You know, the story of the Elijah and the captain looking up and he sees all the enemies who've come to uh, take him captive. But those who are for him, the, the angelic host of the Lord, are far greater than those who are against him. Do you know what I think our problem is sometimes? Not only do we not see the, those who are for us, but we don't see those who are against us. Sometimes we have this false confidence and we have this false security and we have this false hope in ourselves. We are the kind of people who walk around and think, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. It's all great. Except when it's not all great, then that just knocks us for absolute six. We just, we don't see. And when we do see, at times, we are just utterly overwhelmed. The devil, hell, the powers of this world, our own sin. Ephesians 6, 14, 6, 12 rather. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what we're faced with. That's what we're dealing with. Who is against us? Well, that's not what Paul asks, is it? He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's not saying no one is against us. He's saying just very, very simply that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. 
And that's a theme that is through the whole Bible. So Psalm 23, we know it well. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's a fearsome place. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. I used to walk up this uh, very dark pathway uh, in the Northern Highlands where my home was as a boy and I would get off a bus and I'd be walking up these tree-lined avenues which were grey in the daylight but at night there was ghosts everywhere. It was just, it was an incredibly dark place. As a child, when you're walking up that place on your own, it's awful. When you're walking up holding your father's hand, it's fine. It's okay. You are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord's my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Here's the problem. Some of you here as Christians, you're very afraid. You're very scared. You're very discouraged. You're very down about so many things. And Christians do get that. I'm not denying that that happens to Christians. It does. And Christians weep. And Christians hurt. And Christians get pained. But to have the kind of fear that cripples us is to deny that Christ is our light and our salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Will I be afraid of cancer? No, I won't be afraid of cancer. Not because I'll never have cancer, but I won't be afraid of it. Will I be afraid of enemies? No, I won't be afraid of enemies. Again, not because I'll never have enemies. Who who will I be afraid of? Will I be afraid of the devil? Will I be afraid of myself? Will I be afraid of... No, because the Lord is my light and my salvation. In Isaiah 40, and I mean, I could, you could go through just hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible backing all of this up. You think of all the big issues that are going on in the world at the moment and the hysteria and the fears that uh, are instilled in so many people. And what does the Lord say in Isaiah 40? The nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as small dust in the balance. I won't be afraid of ISIS. I won't be afraid of Putin. I won't be afraid of Brexit. I won't be afraid of of the powers and authorities that are in this world. Whom shall I fear? A lot of our our authorities do operate on fear, don't they? Uh, Post came through the door yesterday. Police Scotland. I thought, oh dear. After what I've been doing, maybe um, that's, I've not been doing anything particularly bad, by the way, just criticizing them. I thought, oh, here's a summons. Maybe I shouldn't have called them the thought police. That probably wasn't a good idea. And, and uh, you open the letter. It's a bit of a relief when you realize uh, they found a bit of lost property or something. That's, that's fine. But you get a thing from, you know, it, it operates on a certain level of fear. But here, the Christian is being told, you don't need to be afraid. If God is for you, who can be against you. In the 1650 metrical version of the psalm, one of the psalms I always liked, and I think it probably because I thought as a boy it had a swear word in it and you were allowed to sing it in church, was Psalm 124. 
Um, if that the Lord had not our cause maintained, if that the Lord had not our right sustained, then had we been delivered unto their teeth and bloody cruelty. If that the Lord had not our cause maintained, if that the Lord had not our right sustained, we would have been squashed, we would have been killed, we would have been, we would have been beaten. Now Israel may say, and that truly, that's how that psalm begins, if that the Lord had not been on our side. And what Paul is saying here is the Lord is on your side. The Lord is on your side. You don't have to make him on your side. He's on your side. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that question alone, if God is for us, who can be against us? Every Christian should know that and should meditate upon it and should think about it, and when you are about to be overwhelmed with all the fears that you may have, you need to remember that God Almighty is on your side. It's interesting. Um, Bob Dylan had that, that very, very bitter song, a brilliant song, with God on our side, talking about the military generals and talking about those who said, God is on our side so we can go and, uh, and defeat and kill people. People who have the phrase, God is on their side, to justify their own sin and their own greed. But that's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, you can be killed, not kill. You can be killed, and yet God is on your side. You can face up to all these difficulties, yet God is on your side. But there's one fear, I think, that verse 32 answers, that is, maybe very, very real for many Christians. And it's this. Okay, God's for me just now, but what if I lose God's love? What if things change? Because we're all in relationships <coughs> which change. Maybe <coughs> as the child grows older, they fear losing the love of their parents. Maybe a couple who are together, they fear what can, how, how they can split apart. Um, Paul McCartney wrote for the Beatles, when I'm 64, uh, I used to think that like, that was like decades, and it was decades, but it's now getting fairly closer. Um, so within a decade, you know, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Will you still be sending me a valentine? Birthday greens, bottle of wine. Uh, some of you know the song I'm talking about. Others are going, what are you talking about? Listen, get into the Beatles. They'll, they'll be there. <laughs> and, but that, he, he expressed in that very succinctly and very cleverly a fear. Will my partner still love me? Basically, when I'm old. If they married me for my good looks. Animal didn't, as you gathered. But if they did, and my looks go. If they married me for my money. And that goes. And so there's, there's fear. There's fear in lots of different ways. That's why um, change is so frightening for many of us. Change in work, change in home circumstances, change in, in the country, change in the culture. And again, notice again how, how politicians always, uh, you know, and in one sense say they're for change, but they always project this fear. If you do this, then things will change and they will get worse. Well, the greatest fear surely would be this. God is with me just now, but what if he's not with me 
in the future? Well, Paul argues, as always, from the greater to the lesser. How do you know that God loves you? And the answer is, of course, the cross. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So he begins with the greater and he goes to the lesser and he says, this is how you know. And he's saying, this happened. The cross really happened. Jesus really came. Jesus really died. And not only do you need to know that this happened, but you need to understand it. And this is where the doctrine comes in. If you grasp this, then it changes everything for you. If you understand this teaching, this doctrine, it's so practical. And what's he saying here? Number one, God acted. The cross wasn't just something that happened to Jesus. I feel so sorry for the number of people who will go to church today and they will hear a preacher stand up and say, wasn't it terrible what happened to Jesus? Now we have to go out and be nice to each other. Because Jesus shows us how we should be nice to each other by the way he died on the cross. Poor Jesus. Except this says something that's really horrific at one level. It says God acted. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And this is teaching us, and Paul is teaching us, the cross is not an accident. The devil didn't do it. God did it. Steve Chalk called this cosmic child abuse. And it, it, to me, I think that's probably the most blasphemous thing I've ever heard anyone utter. And to be honest, the most hurtful thing I've ever heard anyone say. Octavius Winslow said this, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. God did it. God delivered his own son. That's what Paul is saying here. He who did not spare his own son. When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Galatians 4.4. There was a phenomenal cost to God. A phenomenal cost to Jesus. Jesus in Gethsemane, in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, the way that people teach the cross, the way that people teach about God, is to me so appalling because... They teach the cross as though it was some kind of ethereal, you know, almost unreal, wonderful thing. I couldn't wear a crucifix. I can't look at a crucifix. To me, it's like having a, a, a model of Auschwitz and wearing it around your neck. The empty cross, yes. But a crucifix, it's horrendous. It's horrible. It was a horrible death. And when Jesus went to Gethsemane... He was in such agony about what was to happen to him that it's recorded that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't doing a Monty Python, always look on the bright side of life. It wasn't a beatific overlooking and saying, I'm just blessing you all, I'm blessing you all. When Jesus was on the cross, he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people around, they couldn't look at him. Because it was so torturous. He gave his own son. Why did God do that? Because of this. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, there are people who deny the atonement. 
I've mentioned Steve Chalk. I'll mention Rob Bell. Rob Bell thought he has been really clever by writing a book called Love Wins. But instead of elevating the love of God, he took the love of God and he trashed it. And he turned it into something cheap. They're not magnifying the love of God when they say, oh, well, God's love just does everything and God's love is fine and forget all this nonsense about Jesus having to die on the cross for our sins. No, 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 no. It's just love. Love wins. Love wins. Love is love. Well, you can go on as many marches as you like and you can go as many campaigns as you want and you can wear as many t-shirts as you like saying love wins, love is love, love is love, love is love. It doesn't make one iota of difference. And I'll tell you this, it does not help those slave prostitutes in this city, not one bit. It doesn't help them and it doesn't help the drug addicts and it doesn't help you. Just cliche, 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 love wins, love wins. I'm sorry, I want to know what love is. And this is love. Christ, the pure, beautiful, glorious Christ, the Son of God, dying, as Paul, as Paul has earlier said in Romans, for his enemies. When people take away the cross, when they take away the atonement, when they deny the substitution of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, do you know what they're doing? They're not magnifying or glorifying the love of God they're spitting on Christ. They're treating him as though he was foolish. He didn't need to do that. But he did. And who for? He gave him up for us all. Who are the us all? Verse 28. Those who love him. God in all things works for the good of those who love him. And that's why the Christian is able to look and say, well, wait a minute. Hang on a minute. I know that God works all things for good. I know that if God is for me, he, he can't be against me. And I know this because Jesus died for me. And if God gave me Jesus, then how's he not going to give me everything else? How's he not going to do that? Just think of the logic. This is relentless logic. You can't go to God as a Christian and say, but Lord, this is happening and that's happening. Why don't you give me this? Why don't you give me that? Prove your love to me by granting this. Prove your love to me by granting that healing. No. God just turns to you and says, I gave you the greatest of all. I can't give you anything more. You want to know if God loves you? What do you do? You want to show your love to someone? What do you do? You go and do something for them. You buy something for them. Well, what did God do? God can never do anything greater than he has already done to show you his love. You think God loves you because you prayed for healing and you were healed. Some of us know what that's like. You prayed to get a job and you got your job. You prayed for your family and they're doing well. The trouble is, when you don't get the job and you don't get healed and your family doesn't do well, you think it's God doesn't love you. You prayed for that thorn in the flesh to go. It hasn't gone. You prayed for that child to be healed. That child wasn't healed. And so, in your mind and in your heart and in the deepest recesses of your being, you have the ultimate fear that God doesn't love you. Because if he did, why would he let this happen? And this is God's answer. His answer is, I gave you my son. I can't give you any more. I can't give you any more. That's it. You want to know that God loves you. Now, lots of other things. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's tied in with that. But please don't ask God to prove his love for you. If you are a Christian, 
because he already has. And that's why he says, graciously give us all things freely. It's the free grace of God. Lloyd-Jones argues that this freely refers back to uh, he didn't freely, he freely gave him up as well as he freely gives us all things. He graciously gave him up. And I think that's right, actually. I think that that makes sense in so many ways. Because earlier, Paul has referred to Abraham as the example of faith. And Abraham was prepared to give up his son when God asked him to. And God said, no, you don't have to do that. I provided a sacrifice. But there was nobody to intervene and say before Jesus went to the cross and say to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, no, you don't. Father, Father, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And then God didn't say, and an angel didn't come and say, it's okay. I provided another way. There is another way. Instead, he was told, this is the only way. This is what you have to do. And he did it freely. He didn't deserve it. This week, um, we were down in London, and as a, uh, someone came to see us, and he, he gave me a gift. I didn't ask for a gift. Honestly, I didn't even hint for a gift. I didn't, nothing. I did nothing to deserve that gift. There was no reason for him to give it to me whatsoever. I didn't earn it. I, it was just, it was just freely given. That's what God did. The trouble with religion is that religious people think that they can earn their way to God. And they think that we can somehow purchase God's favor or somehow we deserve it. And you know this, we can't. We can't. It's freely, graciously given. You might say, well, why does God love me? Because I'm not lovable. Because he does. That's it. That's the ultimate, because he does. It's graciously and freely given. Don't look for reasons as to why God loves you. Just be grateful, enormously thankful that he does. He he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's why we sing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died because it destroys all our pride and it destroys all our religiousness and it destroys all our fears. We look at the cross. Now I want to just, um, we're going to sing that song just now and then we're going to look at just briefly the last two questions. But uh, the song I just mentioned, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, let's uh, stand and, and sing this as we reflect upon what God's word says. Now verses 33 to 34 continue. We've got God's free grace. God is for us. If he give us his son, then will he not also give us all things? But Paul's not done yet. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who's the one is, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, who will bring any charge against those who believe in Jesus? He says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? We don't like, I think, very often thinking of ourselves as those whom God has chosen or God's elect. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. Do you think of yourself as one of God's elect or of God's chosen people? 
And I think we don't, by the way, because we think, we think of election a bit like an election in a, in a vote or at school when you get picked for a school team, go, oh, well, God's chosen me. Isn't that wonderful? But it's actually in biblical terms, it's not about ourselves. It's what God has done. And Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, many of our troubles arise from the fact that we do not think of ourselves in this way. And we think of the Christian as one who's decided for Christ. The emphasis should be the other way around. The Christian is one who's been elected, chosen of God, and precious for that reason. That is why no one can bring any charge against those who believe in Jesus. Who's going to charge us, he says? Who's going to condemn you? The devil will try because he's the accuser. Others will try. Your heart will try. Who's going to condemn you? You come into this church, you sit in this church, and even sitting in the church, you're racked with guilt because of things that you have said and things that you have done. And you listen to God's word, and it's as though sometimes the guilt is just piled upon and piled upon and piled upon, and you want to escape from it. And this is the escape, not to suppress it, but to see that it's God who justifies. Now again, we've looked, Paul's looked at justification in the whole of of the previous chapters, And uh, as we keep repeating, justification is not that God forgives us for our sin. It's that God declares us righteous. God declares us holy. And we're not just cleared of one charge, oh, you did that terrible thing. But we are cleared of every charge, every charge, past, present, and future. Who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. We had wonderful news this week with Uh, Asher's Bakers with that lovely young family who've made a consistent and faithful stand. And for four years, if you listen to um, the lady talking about the abuse and the hatred that they have received, and even today, even this week, I was so moved by their response, which, which was so gracious and so kind. But they were acquitted. You see, they were found guilty at one court, and they appealed to a higher court. They were found guilty again, and they had everything against them. They had the whole apparatus of the state against them. And then they appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided in their favor, not guilty of all charges, not guilty. Maybe there's another court that someone else can appeal to, the European Court or whatever, but not guilty. What a great thing. When God says to you, you are not guilty, the devil has no appeal and no one else has any appeal. There is no higher court because God is the judge and God is the lawgiver. So to be pronounced not guilty by God is just the greatest position to be in. I've been washed, I've been justified. I've been forgiven. It's just a wonderful thing to know. We suppress things. We bury things. What God does when he justifies us is sets us free. You may say, I know I'm bad. I know something of the darkness of my own heart and my own sin. I know I have failed. But as a Christian, you then turn and you say, but I rely totally on Jesus Christ. I'm not relying on my heart. I'm not relying on my goodness. I'm not relying on my repentance. I'm not relying on my faith. I'm not relying on my church. I'm relying entirely on Jesus Christ. It's because God gave Jesus his son 
Who's going to condemn me? No one. What has Christ done? Because he goes on. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Why? Christ died. That's why he came. We've seen that already. He came for our sins. It's finished, he said on the cross. His work of redemption was finished. And what Paul is doing here is something, I, I, think this, I think this is incredible. He's saying, because I think a lot of us have feel this about God, we feel that a sovereign God is somehow one who can be capricious. Now what that means is, we're saying God can do whatever he likes. No, he can't. If Jesus died for you and you believe in Jesus, God cannot condemn you. Now, let me tell you this. If you are a Muslim, you live in fear every single one of your days because supposing you've lived the most perfect life following Allah, their doctrine is that at the end of time, Allah can still say you're going to hell. It doesn't matter what you've done because they believe in this kind of absolute sovereignty of a capricious God. But what Paul is telling us here is God can't condemn you. Because he's already condemned you and he's not going to de- condemn you twice. He's, it, it's, it, is, it would be unjust. And God is just. We cannot be condemned. That's the point of, of verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything flows from that. There is no condemnation. You can't be condemned. You sit here and you feel, well, I am condemned. You sit here and you feel, I could be condemned. You say, what happens if I backslide? What happens if I fall away? You can't be condemned. You can't because of what Jesus has done. And again, you see what Paul is doing. He's, He's just hammering home the teaching of Scripture with logic and with reason. And that's why doctrine matters. And that's why when people say, oh, it doesn't matter as long as you've got Jesus. You haven't got Jesus if you don't know what Jesus did and you don't know how it applies. It's a bit like having a fantastic, you know, radiography machine or whatever up at Nine Wells. And you can go up and admire it and look at it and you haven't a clue how it works. And you haven't a clue what to do with it. It's useless to you. It can be brilliant, but it's useless to you. But this is, if you like, just applied to us. He, he died. He was raised. Um, we, if we had time, I'd read the whole of 1 Corinthians 15, but we don't have time. If Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. He was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 4.25, he delivered him to death because of our offenses. He raised him again because of our justification. We weren't justified by Christ being raised from the dead, but we, it was demonstrated that Jesus is the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So Christ was raised for us. Our resurrection is guaranteed because of his resurrection. And then he's at the right hand of God interceding for us, the great high priest. Now I used to think this was like the high priest in the temple. And it bothered me and I still I couldn't get my head around it until fairly recently. So maybe some of you will well, listen to this and you think, oh, of course, we knew that. But just uh, allow my idiocy for a wee bit. I just couldn't see it. You see, I had this idea that when I sinned, what this meant was Jesus went in to the, to the inner room, if you like, went into God the Father and said, forgive him. You know, so Jesus is interceding all the time for me. But then the way my mind works is it's a bit logical. I thought, well, Jesus must be really busy in heaven because it's not just me, it's everyone else. And he has to go in every day and say, look, David sinned again, forgive him. David sinned again, forgive him. And not just me, but hundreds of millions of Christians. So I'm thinking, that, that can't be right. That can't be what it means. But I wasn't really sure because that's what it seemed like. And that's what happened in the, in the Old Testament. 
when the great high priest once a year entered into the innermost room of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And then, of course, you realize what's happened. Read the whole book of Hebrews, which explains this. Acts 5.31, God has exalted him to his right hand to be a prince and a savior in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What does it mean he lives to intercede for us? It doesn't mean that every time we sin, Jesus comes and presents our case again. Charles Hodge puts it this way, the language is figurative. The meaning is that Christ continues his resurrection and exaltation to secure for his people the benefits of his death Everything comes from God through him and for his sake. Now, what does that mean? It just means simply this, that when Jesus died, when Jesus rose, when Jesus entered heaven, he had already purchased our forgiveness. And he is there on the throne. He doesn't have to go into the temple. He's there. He's on the throne. And so the presence of Christ, if you like, is the absolute guarantee of our forgiveness We don't think, oh, if Jesus doesn't pray for me, then I'm done. We're remembering his words, it's finished. I understand that today, Archbishop Romero is to be made a saint. Well, I wanted to phone up the BBC when they put that on the news and said, by the way, I've been made a saint, and there's a few others, quite a lot of saints here uh, in St. Peter's, um, you know, and if you become a Christian, you're automatically made a saint, by the way. You may think, well, St. Hamish or St. whatever doesn't really, you know, St. Agnes whatever, it doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really work, does it? Well, it does work. That's the point. And I'll tell you what's wrong with the Archbishop Romero stuff. I'm not saying anything about him. I'm just simply saying this. This is where false doctrine leads you because you need an intercessor to take you to the intercessor. See, saints are meant to be, you can go pray to the saints so that the saints will take you to Mary so that Mary will take you to Jesus because the idea is that Mary can have a word with her son so that you'll be okay. But no, we, we have direct access. And you need a sacrifice over and over again. But what Paul is telling us here is it's finished, it's done. Jesus is not sacrificed again. When you take communion, it's not Jesus being sacrificed again. It's finished. And Christ is on the throne. It's done. Jesus is in the holiest of holies. He doesn't need to present the case. His blood has been shed. We have been forgiven. And that's why every teaching within the Christian church, which takes away from the cross and diminishes the cross, is actually robbing and stealing from you. It's robbing and stealing assurance. That's why so many of my Catholic friends are absolutely racked with guilt all the time. Better go and say mass. Better go to confession. Better get this done. Better get this done. Better go and offer sacrifice. No, no, no. That's why so many of my liberal Protestant friends are people who think the gospel is, if I go out and be good to people, I'll be okay. But we'll never be good enough. We'll never do enough religious worship. And that's why, sadly, so many of my Calvinist friends who don't understand the doctrine they profess are racked with guilt all the time because they're thinking, I've sinned and... I'm just not good enough. I'm not pure enough. I can't sit at the Lord's table. I'm not good enough. If you believed what Romans says, if you believed this good news, you would never utter the phrase, I'm not good enough, except as an acknowledgement of an obvious truth. But you would never offer it as a reason for you're not believing, and you'd never offer it as a reason for you're not obeying. 
Of course you're not good enough. None of us are. But Christ did it. And so, let me just finish with this. If God is for us, but what if God is against you? If you are not a Christian, you need to be reconciled to God. You may have many difficulties in this world and many enemies. The last enemy you want is God. You need to be reconciled to him. Come to him. This message of reconciliation is proclaimed and preached to you. It's why you are here, to hear it. And for those of us who are Christians, our enemies, sin, the devil, the law of God, death and hell, all our problems, many, many problems. I'm not going to undermine your problems, nor am I going to lie to you and say that I will go from here, and because I've taught this, I won't have a single worry today. Right now I don't, because right now I see it, and right now, even though I'm not a charismatic, I want to shout out hallelujah, because it's just, this is just such good news, and I really believe it, and I really feel it. And it is wonderful. But I know I'll be worrying about stuff fairly soon. It's why every day I need to keep coming back to the, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Free grace. It is finished. It is done. So I mentioned the problems when we came in. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, and I I love this, so please hold on to this as a kind of summary of what we've been looking at. You do not have a problem too great for the power of Christ. You don't. You do not have a problem too complicated for the wisdom of Christ. You do not have a problem too small for the love of Christ. You do not have a sin too deep for the atoning love of Christ. The best you will get in this world in terms of philosophy is don't worry, be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. It's rubbish. This says, rejoice with joy unspeakable. Unspeakable. You feel this. You can't. You, this, is, this is so unbelievable that when you grasp it, you sit down and you go, oh my, no. That, that's, that's impossible. How can that be? It can be because of Christ. That's how beautiful Christ is. That's how wonderful Christ is. That's the glory of what Christ has done. Please memorize these words. Free grace. God is for us. Who can be against us? God gave us his son. How will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? So why are you worried about them? Who's going to condemn you? God justifies. Jesus Christ, he died, he's alive. And the very fact that he's interceding for us in heaven means that you can never, ever be separated from the love of God. And that's where we'll come in again next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, some of us, we're so burdened with so many things. We're tired, we're weary, we're frustrated, we're angry, we're discouraged, we're depressed, we're, we're, we're confused. We see 
the waves all around and within, we feel overwhelmed. Help us to lift our eyes beyond these things and to see Jesus on the throne, the Lamb slain for us. Help us to know, to know deep within our innermost being that because you are for us, nothing can be against us. That because you were given for us, then we will graciously and freely be given all things. That because you justify, we cannot be condemned. Oh Lord, what a a, a joy, what a liberty to know that. Grant that each one of us would. In your name, amen.